You're listening to the Renew Life Church podcast. We hope this message inspires you and challenges you to become a true disciple of Jesus. To find out more about us, go to renewlifechurch.com. Good morning. I'm in Texas. What, what is this? It's like moves with the spirit. I want to take an offering for a podium. A real podium that preachers use. How's that work out for you? Well, serious note, I'm so glad you're here. I have never been to um, this part of Texas before, and it's a beautiful country. Bill says every time he comes to Texas, he brings his passport in case you guys decide to, you know, leave and start your own nation or something. <laughs> so I kind of see why. I don't know if you notice if you were new here, but I've never been here before, and there's a, a warning about guns on the window. Did you guys notice that? Like, you can carry guns in here. I'm from California, you know. <laughs> we, don't, we don't believe in guns. We don't believe in eating meat. We, we only eat vegetables. Okay, yeah, yeah. anyway, that didn't work too well. Um, I want to give away a couple of books that I wrote, um, and there's a book table in the back, and you can help fund my grandchildren by <laughs> buying those. This is a Spiritual Intelligence, The Art of Thinking Like God, and it's actually, you know what IQ and EQ is. Can you turn me down just a little bit, because I'm a little echoey. Um, you know what IQ and EQ is, but I believe that when you receive Christ, you receive the mind of Christ, and you have access to the, what God is actually thinking. So when your mind is renewed, you think like God, but when you have the mind of Christ, you think God thoughts. And this is, a, I think, a really good book. Who would like this? Awesome, you can buy that in the back. <laughs> now, does anybody have a birthday today? Maybe you're celebrating your divorce. <laughs> Gosh. Such bad humor, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Somebody just come and get this. And this is my newest book. It actually just came out two weeks ago called Uprising, the Epic Battle for the Most Fatherless Generation in History. And uh, I'm going to preach on this today, but would someone like this book? You wouldn't? You trench? <laughs> no, no, it's over there. Yeah. Yes, you can have it. Come on. Thank you. Cool. Well, before we start... Yes, good. Why don't you just grab a hand with the person next to you, and if you'd like to date that person, just squeeze their hand. <laughs> if it's a yes, just squeeze back. Awesome. Okay, you can let go, and then we're going to pray. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for this day, and we just pray for open hearts, Lord, open minds. We pray for revelation to flow freely from us to the people of God, and we pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you about this um, encounter that I had in 2019. We have a prayer meeting that's dedicated to just praying for our government, praying for our leadership in our nations, and it's just an hour long, but we were in that meeting on, uh, I think it was early January of 2019, and as we were praying, um, somebody just started praying Malachi 4, that in the last days, 
It, it says, in the last days I'll send Elijah the prophet. He's going to restore the hearts of fathers to sons and daughters and hearts of sons and daughters to fathers. And we just began to, in cadence with about 100 people in the room, we just began to go after what, what, I, what I later kind of coined the Malachi mandate, that we would actually see the restoration of family, the reconstruction of families and fathers and sons and daughters and mothers would come home and we just began to go after it. And as we were doing that, maybe 10, 15 minutes in the room, the Holy Spirit so, I'd say, you know, we say all kinds of ways to express what an experience, like, I just feel like the Holy Spirit just fell in the room and people just began to cry out for the restoration of fatherhood. And I just began to just go deeper. We just began to go deeper as a team, as a prayer team. And as we did, I had a vision, a really clear vision. And in the vision, I saw men and boys, and they were, you know how weird visions are. They were like coming out of their homes, and they were in ragged clothes, and their countenance was, was uh, like depressed and discouraged. And they were, in, you know, first just a couple of people into the streets, and then pretty soon there was 10, and then 20, and then 50, and then hundreds, and then thousands of men began to come out of their homes and, and, and come into the streets. And as they did, their countenance was depressed, and they just began to all head one direction, and almost like uh, watching the whole thing from a, like a drone video, I saw men just, now just hundreds of thousands of men, and they were all heading to this, a specific place, and, and as we got closer to this place, I noticed it was a stadium, and I could hear, uh, I could hear the sound of someone calling these men to, to, to action, to manhood. And as we got closer and closer, as the men came into the, into the stadium, their countenance instantly changed. And they were smiling and their clothes were suddenly, you know, like changed and there, and there, and there was a, there was a sound of, of joy in the stadium. And I, I recognized the voice and the voice said to the men, men, I'm here, we are here to learn how to be men. And I looked up on the, on the stage and it was my son, Jason. And he was calling men, he was calling men back to manhood. And the men began to rejoice and they began to shout. And I, I've never done this before, but while I was in the vision, I felt that I was to text my son who's the worst texter in the world. He never texts back to like three days after you're so insecure you think he doesn't like you anymore. And I text my son and I, I was just describing what I just described to you and, and, uh, and I was just describing in, in detail what I, what I saw and as soon as I finished and sent the text, like 20 seconds later he texts back and he said, Dad, I had that same vision just six months ago. Men filling stadiums, coming back to homes, homes being restored, families being reconstructed. And we began to call out for that. It was just about, I don't know, two months later that I got this prophetic 
diary from someone. They, they came up to me and said, and, and handed me this diary, and he said, I don't know what's going on, but there's going to be a stadium event where men fill stadiums and are restored to, to fatherhood and, and husbands coming home. And I feel like um, that when Malachi wrote this 500 years before Christ, he perceived a world not absent of fathers, but absent of fatherhood. And it's interesting because, you know, this is the most fatherless generation in history in which fathers are alive, but they're not home. For example, 687,000 men, mostly men, died in the Civil War when the population of America was 31 million. And so that was a fatherless generation, and it took two decades for fathers to come home because they were dead. They were, we lost our fathers. And so it took more than two decades for fathers to be, sons to become fathers and fathers to actually come back home. But this is the most fatherless generation in history in which our fathers are alive, but they're actually not home. And I began, after that encounter with the Lord, I began to ask the question, how many of you know, whatever you misdiagnose, you mistreat. So the question is, what happened and why is this the most fatherless generation in history? By the way, Fox News just did, um, just in, six months ago, they just did a whole documentary on the most fatherless generation in history. And they, they mark statistically that this is the most fatherless generation in, the, in, the, in modern history. I, I want to just take you through a little bit of like how did we get here because it's important like how do we actually undo what was done for us. In the 60s we had, I, I, I was born in 55 so I, I, you know, I was part of the 60s sexual revolution. And you, you know if you're old enough to remember that some of you would be you know the the model of the 60s is was if you can't be with the one you love love the one you're with basically have sex with anyone don't have any commitments and it's okay to it's okay the hookup culture it's okay to have sex outside of marriage and by the way people had sex outside of marriage my mother got pregnant with me out of wedlock, but immediately my mother and father, as soon as my mother realized she was pregnant, my mother and father eloped because culture, not Christian culture, culture in general said children should be born out of marriage, out of a covenant relationship. And so, but the 60s, um, which climaxed with Woodstock in August of 69, which was the icon of a decade of drug, sex, and rock and roll, the 60s said, you don't, you don't have to be married. You can just have sex whenever you want. And it, it spawned this, what was called the sexual revolution. And the beginning of, of the acceptance of a different sexual, can I say promiscuity, a different whole sexual idea around sexuality was, was again, birth at least in, in America, in modern history. And in the midst of the sexual revolution, another powerful force emerged in our country, and that was Darwinism. Now, you may, be, you may believe in evolution. I, I don't really care at this point. But, sex, but Darwin, he died in 1880, 
and Darwinism was largely not impactful in our, in our world. In 1920, Darwinism was introduced to the American public school system, but no one really cared. It, it didn't hold a lot of weight. But what happened in the sexual revolution is that we had people violating their conscience and they needed a reason to not have to answer to the God of heaven. So Darwinism provided a really great, um, if you will, theology, philosophy. The sexual revolution created a perfect environment for Darwinism because, it, because people were violating their own moral values and they were looking for a way to avoid answering to a God for the guilt they were experiencing. Star Charles Darwin gave the world an excuse that they needed to live like hell and not answer to heaven. And it, all Darwinism did a couple of things. The first thing it did is instead of teaching, uh, instead of being taught that we were created in the image of God, as people once commonly believed in our country, we were taught that our ancestors were not divine but ape-like. Consequently, now we protect animals and kill babies. The second, theory of, the second part of the theory of evolution that took away the purpose, I'm sorry, the second, second, the theory of evolution took away our purpose. Instead, it told us that we came through a series of cosmic accidents, and therefore there was no dis divine design, no purpose in which we came about, no creator who loved us enough to die for us. And this philosophy elevated pleasure as the highest goal of life. It said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Whether you agree with Darwinism or not, it's important to understand that the scientific theories that led to the cultural mindsets that have ultimately been destructive to human dignity. So out of all of this, am I boring the heck out of you guys? <laughs> out of all this came this powerful statistic. In 1950, only 2% of all children in America were born out of wedlock. But by 2017, 51% of all children in America are born out of wedlock. That's not a mistake. 51% of all children in America are now born out of wedlock. Now, now, by the way, you can't find statistics after 2017 because when I wrote the book, um, when I wrote the, the fathering book, I just forgot what it is, Uprising, I'm a little bit nervous. I don't know why. I don't know if it's, I just know you guys are caring. <laughs> you can't find statistics after 2017. When we wrote the book Uprising, I had a team of people um, that were actually doing all the research for the statistics. And when I got all the statistics and I was updating the statistics, I noticed that there was no statistics after 2017. And so I asked my team, I said, how come there's no statistics after 2017? They said, we can't find them. So the actual publisher came back and said, hey, we need newer statistics. And actually, government doesn't keep statistics after 2017. If they do, they actually don't release them. Do you know why? Because the LGBTQ community wants it to be normal for you to have two mommies and two daddies. So they have what, what their tenet is called the deconstruction of the family, meaning that you don't want to keep statistics on fatherlessness because fatherlessness now is now being described as normal. So the government can't release statistics because there'll be an uprising just about the statistic. <laughs> Here we go. What happens 
when fathers aren't home. Well, let me give you a little example. There's a story, you may have heard it before. Some years ago, the officials at uh, Kruger National Park and Game Reserve in South Africa faced a growing elephant problem. (laughs) The population of African elephants, once endangered, had grown larger than the park could sustain. So it goes on to say that they had these huge African elephants that were, were going extinct, and so they actually bred them in Cougar National Park. Have you heard the story? And what happened was that they, bred, they did so well that the elephants began to take over the park. And they said, well, what are we gonna do with all these elephants? So, well, let's ship some of the elephants to another park. Well, how do you ship an elephant? You like, can't really UPS it or FedEx it. So what they did is, is they, they got these helicopters, you know these helicopters that lift logs, those kind of helicopters? And they built harnesses and they shipped some of the African elephants to a, a nearby game reserve, another game reserve. And uh, they, everything went fine except for when they tried to lift the adult male elephants that were quite a bit heavier, it broke the harnesses. Well, they thought, well, it's no problem. We have a lot of the younger male elephants there. There's no reason to solve this problem. So they introduced this, all of these African elephants into this other national park. And within a few months, there was a crisis in that new park and that the rhinoceroses, the white rhinoceros, which also were rare and were being bred in that park, were suddenly dying. And so the, the, the scientists came into the park and they were tasked with trying to figure out why the white rhinoceros were dying. And they, they noticed that they had been gored in the side and they first thought that there were poachers actually coming in and killing the rhinoceroses, but poachers always take the, the tusks because they're, they're very valuable and none of the tusks were gone. So they finally set up cameras in the areas that the white rhinoceroses lived and what they found is that the young male elephants were actually killing the rhinoceroses, which has never in, their, in modern history ever happened because they live side by side in, in all African jungles. They've always lived side by side. So they're trying to figure out why these, these male elephants were so vicious. And by the way, they were killing other things too. And so they tried a whole bunch of things and finally they said, well, the only thing that's different in this park than every other park is that we, that we introduced the young male elephants without the adult male elephants. So they solved the harness problem and they flew in a whole bunch of adult male elephants into the new park and within one month all the killing stopped and what they I'll read you what they actually said to test the theory the rangers constructed bigger and stronger harnesses and flew some of the older bull elephants left behind at Kruger within weeks the bizarre and violent behavior of the juvenile elephants stopped completely the older bulls let them know that their behavior was not elephant at all, elephant-like at all. In a short time, the younger elephants were following the older elephants, older dominant elf- bulls around, learning how to be elephants. And so the question becomes, what happens when you take fathers out of homes? And by the way, ladies, let me just say, this might be a painful to preach for you, but I wrote the book, Fashion to Reign, about empowering women. So this is not gonna be a balanced message. Today we're going to talk about fathers, and people write me, oh, mothers are important too. I know, my mother raised me. I get it. <laughs> you, you know, your mother always believes in you, right? You can be a drug addict, and your mother's like, oh, you're studying to be a pharmacist, you know? 
let me give you just a few statistics. 90% of all American inmates are men. 75 to 90% of all inmates grew up without a father. In other words, if you put fathers in homes, crime dramatically decreases. 63% of all youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the national average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. You're 32 times more likely to run away if you don't have a dad in the home. 85% of all children showing behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That includes, by the way, which we just figured out, that includes the, the shooting problem that we're seeing in schools and malls. Nearly every one of those men, and by the way, it's almost always men, almost every one of those men who have been doing the shootings were either their father was not present or he wasn't in the home at all. 80% of all rapists come from fatherless homes. You're 14 times more likely to rape somebody if you don't have a dad. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the national average. By the way, where are you getting the statistics? That statistic came from the National Principals Association. The Justice and Behavior um, Council is where we're getting uh, most of these and the Center for De Disease Control. So these are not political statistics. These, in fact, you can't even get these statistics anymore. They're not keeping these, if they are, they're not keeping the statistics or they're not publishing the statistics. We don't know which. But you can't find them anymore because fatherlessness is now supposed to be normal. Uh, I, I want to point out that men and women aren't the same. <laughs> I watched a, a video that would be funny if it didn't break your heart. They were asking some of the some politicians and some psychologists and some psychiatrists, you probably saw this video, what is a woman? And I'm like, these people are so smart, they're stupid. In Genesis 22:22, the Lord God fashioned into a woman, I'm reading it to you, the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. And the next verse says, therefore a man shall leave his, his, his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. L let me just point out, and maybe this may be too radical, but where, how many know that when God put Adam to sleep, he took the woman out of the man? That's what it says right there. <laughs> Are you with me? That means that the woman had to be in the man. This is pretty deep. I'm saying, if, the, if, Ad, if God took the woman, if God put Adam to sleep and he took the woman out of the man, then where was the woman? In the man. And I'd propose that when God created Adam, that he was both male and female. Male and female, like the male and the female were inside one. And then God said, it's not good for you to be alone. I'd propose that Adam wasn't alone in the sense, you know, because God, okay, well, anyway. I don't know if we need to go through all this, but did you notice that when God said, Adam, it's not good for Adam to be alone, he created creatures so that Adam wouldn't be alone. I'd propose that if he was creating creatures for Adam to procreate with, that would be strange because God said that he created everything after its kind. So the creatures could not have been there for Adam to procreate with. I'd say that he was creating 
what we call pets so Adam wouldn't be lonely. And finally, he saw no creature that could keep Adam from feeling, from, being, from feeling lonely. So what did God do? He puts Adam to sleep, and he takes the woman out of the man. And when Adam wakes up, he sees what, in front of him what was once in him, and he begins to prophesy to it immediately. You are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman, for you were taken out of the man. And what does he want immediately? He wants it back. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And my point is this, is that the God, God took the masculine and feminine, and he took the feminine out of the masculine. So we say this, this crazy stuff all the time. We say, you just need to get in touch with the feminine side. We say that to men. But I'd like to propose that, can't, that you can't get in touch with the feminine side because you don't have one. That God took himself, how many know God's both male and female? Okay, here we go. God didn't make women in another image. Like, it's not like God, man are made in God's image and woman was made in some other image. How many know God is both male and female? And if you oppress women, if you oppress women, you lose the revelation of half the nature of God. Because God is not just male. In fact, he's called El Shaddai. That means the multi-breasted one. Anyway, too much information. My point is, actually, for this message is men and women are not the same. You can't have two mommies and two daddies and do what God intended. Because God intended a man and a woman to have children. <laughs> this is, it's biology 101. <laughs> and, but here's a, here's a powerful point. When God creates anything, he actually fashions your tridimensional being after his purpose. Uh, let me say it like this. God, well, let me read it to you. God creates physical distinctions and fashions triune attributes that synergistically enhance the strength of, your char- of, these, those, of those characteristics. God never creates physical characteristics in, cre- in creation without affecting its divine role in life. In other words, when God gives women breasts, he, just, he didn't just give them breasts so they could feed children. He actually gave them a nurturing nature. Are you with me? I'm saying that God creates your physical body after your divine call. How many know that women carried every child in the world? This is so deep. What, what does that have to do with anything? Well, women... You know how many wars women have started in the world? I said none. And a, high, and a historian came up and said two. I said, okay, what were they? He couldn't remember. <laughs> and what's your point, Bellaton? Women are historically less violent. Well, you say, well, because they can't beat up a man. There are guns today. How many shootings are done by women? I'm not saying none. I'm saying very few. Why? Because women are less violent. Why are women less violent? Because they carried every human in their wombs. So their first thought when they disagree isn't like, let's blow that country up. Let's kill that guy. Let's fight about that. Why? Because God's given them a nurturing nature. Women women are 10% slower in speed and 15% weaker in strength. What's that mean? 
It means that they're inherently negotiators. I'm saying when God changes your, your when God creates anything, he gives it a protection. I mean, a porcupine can't run fast, but I don't think you want to hug it. <laughs> there are fish that we see in the ocean that they, they fit into such to their, to their setting that you can't actually see them. I'm pointing out that God gives everything a protection. Women have intuition and they have a nurturing nature. Why? Because they, in nature, they're not as fast and strong, but they are stronger in other areas. <laughs> okay, here we go. I'm saying all this to say men and women aren't the same. They're not interchangeable. Women have a role to play in family that men don't have. And men have a role in family that women don't have. Women have a role as mothers that you can't play as a father. I'm not saying there isn't overlapping rules. I mean, uh, roles. Of course there are. I'm pointing out that men and women are not the same. Are you with me? <laughs> They're not interchangeable. So what happens when, what are the side effects of fatherlessness? Number one, men are being feminized because mothers without fathers are raising them. I'd like to suggest that gender confusion and gender dysphoria and homosexuality are growing out of the seedbed of fatherlessness. Well, why? Well, there are some really, there are some really obvious ones in my mind. If, if women are left alone to raise their children, first of all, if a man, if a woman can't be a man and a man can't be a woman, then your mother could try to raise you as a masculine man, but how many you know, mom, women give birth to boys, but men give birth to men. <laughs> Fathers give birth to men. And I'm just pointing out that your mother can't teach you how to be a man because she's a woman. <laughs> you can teach what you know, but you only impart who you are. <laughs> Secondly, many women that are left alone and been abandoned by men, they're angst with their, their, their husband or their, the man who got them pregnant. So they're actually, they're actually bitter with the person who left them alone. What does that do? What happens when your mother doesn't actually like your father? Well, she's not actually embracing the masculine side of humanity. And it goes on and on. I'd propose that abortion is actually the side effect of fatherlessness. That abortion is not to send a motherhood, it's to send a fatherhood. Almost all abortions are done because a woman has been abandoned. The absence of fathers creating behavior tolerance. The lack of discipline. Uh, finish this sentence for me. Wait until your father gets home. Wait till your father gets home. <laughs> what, what, why? Does the father the only one that disciplines? No, but the father's greatest role, one of the father's greatest roles in family is he brings discipline to family, right? You guys have got this look. I don't know if this is a Texas look. or. <laughs> Number three, men lack confidence in their ability to lead and provide for a family because it's never been modeled for them. 
therefore they delay or reject mar marriage relationships. It, it's funny how we're embracing socialism in, in our culture. You know why we're embracing socialism? Because you have a culture of fatherlessness. What happens when you have a culture of fatherlessness? Who's, who's actually providing for your children? Government. So you trust government more than you trust a man because government is who raised you. So of course I embrace socialism because I need someone to take care of me because my, my husband, the man who bore these children, isn't. <laughs> fatherlessness, fatherlessness, fatherless men relate to women as mothers and sisters, but not as wives and lovers because they never observe how a husband relates to his wife. Consequently, they don't pursue lovers, they pursue mothers. Someone who will care for them, not a person they can provide for, protect, and promote. In a fatherless society, authenticity is, is redefined to being true to your feelings instead of being true to your purpose. I, I, wanna, I just want to finish this last part with what do fathers teach men? How to conquer their fears. Number one, how to conquer their fears and negotiate with your enemies. What does your father teach you? Your father teaches you how to conquer your fears. Your mother's like, you get hurt, your mom's like, come over here, Johnny. You okay? Your dad's like, oh, it's good. Get out there and get back on that bike again. I can't, I'm not saying your mother doesn't ever do that. I'm saying your father thinks differently. He's like, you can't be afraid of that bike. You can't be afraid of that, that thing that happened. You, you got to get back on that you got to get back on that horse and you got to do it again. This is the role of fatherhood. Your mother's like the compassionate one. Doesn't mean your father doesn't have compassion, but it means your mother leads in it. But your father's the one that says, you need to conquer that fear. You need to climb that mountain. You need to take, you, you get me. Like, when, if someone breaks into my house, I don't wake my wife up and go, go down and check that out. I'll call the police. <laughs> I'm pointing out that there is a role that we know about. We, we, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or Independent, whatever. It, like, there is a role that is natural in a man. And by the way, it's quickly going away. Number two, fathers teach men how to provide for their families. This role gives them purpose, meaning, and identity. Doesn't mean that women can't be in the workplace. No, read my book, Fashion to Rain. I'm pointing out that a wife... A, a, a mom, a wife might make more money, but it's the father's duty to provide for his family. <laughs> you know, uh, Peter saw this vision in Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 15, where he saw a blanket coming down, and he saw all these unclean animals in it. And what was the command? It wasn't eat, it was kill and eat. <laughs> I'm just pointing out that, you know, yeah, hunting, I thought this might be good here. I, might, I thought this might work. Kill and eat is part of an ecosystem of manhood because they are tasked with providing substance for the family. But in a feminized world, provision is trumped by compassion and vegetarianism is the outcome. I thought you'd like that. I always say to the vegetarians in our congregation, there are a lot of rabbits who died so you could have those vegetables. <laughs> Number three, fathers teach men to compete for the prize, fight for the promise, build for the future. 
This is how men learned how to fight for and aggressively pursue women, the women of their dreams. In Song of Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, I love this, this passage. This is the, uh, you know, have, have you ever read Song of Solomon? Uh, the Bible. Uh, have you tried this book? It's a really good book. Has anybody read Song of Solomon? Song of Solomon is, it, it has three parts, right? It has the bride, she's, she's talking, and then the, the groom is often responding, and then there's a choir. <laughs> I, I, I've, I've often thought that it'd be so amazing in my marriage if I was rich enough to have a choir following us around all the time, you know, singing things like, ain't no mountain high enough, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like right before bedtime, and I'll leave it at that. But in Song of Solomon 2.8, it's the bride, and, she, and she, she says this, Listen, my beloved, behold, he's coming. He's climbing on the mountains. He's leaping on the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle. He's like a young stag. Behold, he's standing behind the wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. He's a freaking peeping tom. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but my point is that she sees her beloved as the pursuer. He's like... He's climbing over the wall. He's, he's climbing the mountains. He's, he's looking through the lattice. He's, he is pursuing her. And what is she doing? All through the Song of Songs. She's going, no, 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 no. And then when he goes away, she's going, yes, 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 yes. And then he gets close and she goes, no, 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 no. And the challenge is that a woman playing hard to get should inspire the masculine need to win, to compete for the prize, to climb the castle wall. But in a feminized world, a woman has to put a ladder against the castle wall, followed by a safety rope, and then wait at the bottom to show him the way up. <laughs> we have 2,000 students in our school ministry. 60% of them are women. And our male students, who are mostly single, they say things all the time. I can't find a I can't find a, a woman. It makes me freaking angry. You can't find a woman. I can't find a woman. I have them hold hands every week and squeeze every week. Like, I'll make it easy. Just freaking squeeze, dude. You know when I preach, I'm going to have you squeeze. Sit strategically. And I say to the men, when she says no, that doesn't mean no. No means climb the mountain. Jump over the wall. And the women remind me when I taught this the other day, last year, they said, sometimes no means no. So fathers teach you that there's no, there's no, and there's no. I don't know if you're even getting where I'm going. I'm just saying, when you don't have fathers in culture, you have men delaying marriage into their 30s and 40s. Why? First of all, they don't know how to find a woman because they've been raised by a mother without a father, so they're not looking for someone they can promote, provide, and protect. They're looking for someone who take care of them. 
And they say things all the time. And this is 25 years of frustration coming out in one message. <laughs> they say, I say, well, how about Jane? Like, she's amazing. She loves God. She looks like a model. She's brilliant. And I said, well, I couldn't date her. Why? Well, she's like my sister. Everyone's like your sister when you're raised without a father. Because <laughs> you only relate to women as sisters and mothers because you've never seen a lover. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> Fathers give the family identity. That's their job. Well, I don't believe that. Well, listen, your sex was determined by your dad. It was his sperm that determined whether you're male or female. By the way, there's only two sexes, male and female. I mean, this is biology. I'm not trying to make hurt anybody's feelings, but there's just two sexes, male and female. And your dad's sperm determine your sex. And not only that, when you marry, nearly every culture all around the world takes on whose last name? The father's. Why? Because it is encumbered upon men to bring identity to their families. It's their debt. I'm not saying mom don't have a role in it. Listen, I'm pointing out men lead in one area, women lead in, lead in another. I'm not saying men shouldn't be nurturing. Of course they should. But it's the woman, it's the wife, it's the mother who leads in the role of nurturing. Men should be merciful, but women lead in it. <laughs> mom should help with identity, but men lead in it. Are you with me? You have a whole generation trying to figure out not what to do, who the heck they are. And we send, them to, we send them to university. Certainly if you learn enough, you'll know who you are. And they come out not loving God, not believing in God, and, and not knowing who they are. And they're still, spend, I mean, uh, President Biden is trying to forgive debt because he realizes that you paid $100,000 for an education that you didn't get. <laughs> And you still don't have a job. And you still can't figure out who you are. And you're not going to fix that with education. You're only going to fix it with a revival and a reformation where fathers come home. Are you with me? Fathers promote legacy. Proverbs 22.6. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong scripture. Anyway. Solomon wrote, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. I want to point out that we live in a fatherless generation. We're being frog-boiled. Listen, the challenge is it's not getting better. It's getting worse. This is the challenge. I, I, the, in, when, I, I hope I don't offend anybody, but during social justice, the social justice thing that went down most recently, which was very sad, a whole movement started Black Lives Matter. I believe black lives matter. I believe white lives matter. I, but I mean, I get it. In the midst of an atrocity, we should say to black people, you matter. And I very much was trying to say to our staff, which is 37 of them on staff, black people on our staff, and our students, we have lots of students who are black. They're not necessarily African-Americans because many of them are from Africa. You matter. 
But the challenge is, is that the LGBTQ organization activists took over Black Lives Matter and they made one of the tenets of Black Lives Matter the deconstruction of the family, which 71% of African-American families are fatherless. This is the largest people group we have that's fatherless. And I'm pointing out that we need a reformation and we're being intimidated into silence. And we are embracing the very thing that is at the foundation of fatherlessness. And we are afraid to speak up. And I'm saying we need a reformation of fathers. We need fathers to come home. And I believe that we're in the midst of the greatest reformation in modern history. And that reformation isn't just, I went to church and got the glory. I love the presence of God. But we need the presence of God to go with us. When Moses in Exodus 33 went to the tent of meeting, it says the glory of the Lord covered the tent. And Joshua stayed at the tent. And Moses would, every time he'd go to the tent of meeting, which he pitched outside the camp, the glory of the Lord would cover the tent. But I don't know if you ever noticed Moses' prayer. He said to God, love the tent. I'm (laughs) ad-libbing. But I need you to go with us. (laughs) I mean, I love being at the tent, but when I actually need you (laughs) is when we're not at the tent. (laughs) And I'm taking this people into a land that you promised me, but I need you to go with me. (laughs) I don't just need you at the tent. I don't know if you're getting where I'm going. Like, it's great. Let's have worship. I love worship. By the way, these are my favorite worship people. They're sons and daughters of mine. I love worship, but you have to offer your body as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. What I'm getting at is worship. Coming to the tent is fine, and it's wonderful, and it's amazing, and we all measure worship by how profoundly an hour was. And I'm like, I need worship when I'm going. (laughs) I need you to go with me so that what happens, the expectation I have on Sunday mornings actually is with me on Monday morning when I'm with a whole fatherless generation that can't freaking figure out if they're male or female. Like, I don't need judgment. I need presence. (laughs) I need people who are in those situations to have an encounter with the Creator who says to them, this is who you are. We have a person on our staff, her name's Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a Lutheran, and she was living a gay lifestyle. And she became a Lutheran pastor. And she was writing the white paper. They asked her, they they commissioned her to write their, their white paper on why it's all right to be gay and Christian. And so Elizabeth was tasked with that. She's brilliant. She has a genius IQ. She got halfway through the letter. She had lived like this for eight years as a pastor of a Lutheran church. She got halfway through the letter and the Lord said to her, you haven't asked me about that. She'd already been to psychologists, trying to, you know, she's very in the beginning trying to not have these feelings. And the Lord said to her, that's not who you are and that's not who I am. And he immediately, she had an encounter with God, and in that moment, it changed her forever. 
Now she leads the change movement, giving hope to people that are in that situation like she was in, that actually you can change because the power of God will take that temptation and he'll turn it around and change you. And what I'm getting at is that encounters change people. Can't talk someone out of their feelings. But you can, but they can have an encounter that changes them. And I believe that we are in the midst of kind of like a promise keeper's but on Holy Spirit steroids. And I believe that the Lord is opening the hearts of men to come home. And I saw in this vision, I told you about part of it, I saw in this vision that someone, something dormant in men and in boys clicked on. As if, like geese that fly south in the winter, it's like they just, there's something instinctive that clicked on. And I saw after five generations of fatherlessness that something just clicked on in men and they began to just migrate home didn't even know why they're just like I gotta go home I gotta I gotta I gotta I gotta get home I was after the encounter I told you about which was on Thursday morning on Sunday morning Bill was preaching and he turned to me and said why don't you lead the prayer time in the service okay so I kneeled at my my chair and I was just thinking about what to pray about and I heard the word prepare for re-entry I didn't I didn't relate to anything I was trying to figure out what that meant prepare for re-entry the re-entry of what and so I was just kneeling and I was like prepare for re-entry what does that mean and I suddenly had this picture in my mind of the prodigal father waiting in the field with hopeful expectation, waiting for his boy to come home, who had taken his inheritance and spent it on prostitute and pimps. And he was at the pig palace, and one day he realizes that he could be at his father's farm. You remember this, right? And it says that his father saw him from far off. My point is, is that his father was waiting in hopeful expectation. But what I didn't actually see at the time is that the father didn't just wait in hopeful expectation. He'd actually prepared the robe, the ring, and the sandals, and he was feeding a fattened calf. I'm pointing out that he was, he had faith for his son to come home. And by the way, I'd like to point out that the father didn't turn the farm into a house of prostitution to draw the boy home. He waited for the boy to repent. And when the boy was a long ways off, you know the story, Luke 15, it says the father ran out to meet him. Why? Because he knows that when, as the boy gets closer, that his shame will grow. And when he connects with his son, his son immediately says, Father, please forgive me. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please let me be your servant. And the father has nothing to do with that. And he begins to shout to his servants, get the robe, the ring, and the sandals. Bring the robe, the ring, and the sandals. Put the robe on his back, the the ring on his finger and the sandals on his feet. And kill the fattened calf. 
And I'd like to just suggest that the Father did not restore the Son. The community restored it. He didn't put the robe on his back. The community put the robe on his back. The Father dictated the attitude towards the returning Son. He said to the whole community, we'll have no shame. We won't be shaming this boy. We will be celebrating. And you probably know the story that the older son, who's actually working in the field, hears the party and asks the servant, what the heck? The servant says, oh, your, your father's having a party because your, your brother's coming home. And he's mad. And he refuses to come. And the father goes out into the field again for the second son. This is the church son. And he says to the son, come to the party. Your brother who was dead is now alive. Your brother who was lost is now found. And his older son says to him, this son of yours, this son of yours spent your money on prostitutes. And now you give him the fattened calf and you have even given me a freaking goat. I put freaking in there. <laughs> and his father said to him, I gave him the fattened calf, but the whole farm is yours. And then he says this to him, but your brother, who was lost, not my son, your brother, who was lost, is now found. Your brother, who was dead, is now alive. It's time for you to join the celebration. And I just want to say that we need to prepare for reentry because we are going to have hundreds of thousands of fathers coming home. The father put the robe on him. He restored his identity. The ring, he restored his authority. The sandals, he restored his purity. It's our job not to judge those who are coming home, but to welcome him. Oh, your brother ran out of money. That's the only reason he came home. That's none of your business. That's between him and daddy. Your job is to restore him. Would you stand? Isaiah, I think it's um, verse seven, chapter seven. Isaiah sees a time when he writes this. Seven women say to one man, please give us your name and we will serve you. When there is such a disparity of fatherlessness that women are saying, you don't even have to, you, listen, if you just marry me and give me your name, I will serve you like a slave. And I believe that we're in this season where people are so starving for identity and fatherhood. And that what we're seeing in media is actually the disparity of people 
in dire need of being loved. And I just want to pray for us. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would open our hearts, the hearts of mothers, the hearts of fathers. And Lord, I pray that boys without fathers would find coaches, teachers, pastors, mentors that would come around them as it does take a village and would take that place of that missing father that they would that men would help the fatherless and that there would be a great reunion of fathers and families in Jesus name and Lord I pray for a Holy Spirit conviction over each of us that we would find our place in this reformation of the reconstruction of the family in Jesus name Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. We hope you felt encouraged by today's message. If you need prayer or would like to connect with us, find us on social media or by going to renewlifechurch.com.